Welcome back to the Transforming Cities podcast. Each episode highlights ideas around rethinking the way cities are evolving. We discuss planning, design, technology, development, and other fields that contribute to the urban experience. On this episode, I'm speaking with Vicki Bartling, Senior Integrated Marketing Manager at JLL. And that's when I, you know, I realized that there was this whole other side of design and the business of getting work and, and the ecosystem of all the different subcontractors and how contracts get signed and payments and all of that. And it's such an important thing that, yeah, I just felt that we didn't get enough practical or real world training in that. With an education in architecture and design research, Vicky's leveraged her design experience to lead marketing, business development, and brand strategies for global architecture and design firms to innovation consultancies. Currently, she's focused on marketing innovation in the real estate industry, working for JLL out of their global headquarters in Chicago. I'm your host, Chris Arnold. Let's jump right in. Vicky, thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Chris. I'm happy to be here. So I want to jump right in by kind of letting our listeners know more about your background. I love starting this way just to provide context to everyone listening. So tell us what your youth was like and sort of where did that lead to you going to school and kind of growing up in the education system? Sure. So I grew up in the Northwest suburbs of Chicago, grew up in Arlington Heights, and it was so great to be so close to such a you know world-class city and to have that in my backyard, so to speak. So going downtown and seeing the buildings and going to shows and, you know, the architectural river tour and going to the merchandise mart was a huge part of my childhood. And and I, I loved, you know, going down there. And as I realized that I wanted to get into design and architecture, it was just so perfect to have all of these things at my fingertips, which was really great. But I was influenced, I think, from my parents. My dad as a mechanic and my mom is a physical therapist. So I spent a lot of time with my dad building things, fixing things, learning how to put it together. And I have such a love for using my hands to create things. Whereas from my mom, I learned about how, you know, people of differing abilities were going through the world and how simple design changes could make such a, an impact. And, you know, later on in life, learning about accessible design and universal design that really came from learning from my mom, which was great. So yeah, as a kid, I think I, I either wanted to be an archaeologist or or an architect. And growing up in Chicago and, and the childhood I did, I, I think I was just easily went into thinking architecture was going to be my my future and wanted to pursue that. And you know, living there made it made it really easy. But I actually went to school in Milwaukee, so University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. They have the School of Architecture and Urban Planning there. And luckily for me, I was given a scholarship for being an Illinois student, which was the, the, one of the main reasons why I ended up going there. And I loved Milwaukee. Milwaukee is a great city. It was really nice to be close to Chicago, but still yet, you know, in a different a, a different city and mm-hmm. such a great design community there. And I was really strongly influenced by the dean of our architecture school and the way that the city of Milwaukee was making its decisions in urban planning and design. And um, it was a really, really great experience. And I'm really happy that um, I decided to go there. 
Yeah, that's that's fantastic. I, I'm I'm curious to roll the tape back just for a second there to hear a little bit more about your Chicago upbringing. Was there anything that stands out from when you were a kid? Uh, you mentioned the kind of the boat tour, checking out all the architecture. Was there anything like that that kind of reverberates for you in your memories? Yes, definitely going to the merchandise mart. They every year they have a big design show where they have different designers who design a different room and you walk through it as though you're walking through a house huh. in the you know in in the merchandise mart. So yeah. I was just completely enamored by the building and by seeing all of these different designers come together and do these just incredible things. Um so it became something that you know my mom and I would drive into the city and go do that and even to this day the merchandise mart is my favorite building downtown and I love I just love being in it it has such a good energy yeah i always think about this is this is kind of funny but i think about Ferris Bueller's day off and uh-huh. how they kind of do the day around <laughs> the day around chicago and architecture is a big part of it and sort of the yes. the culture and the design of chicago is is very much on display there so i guess i imagine kind of you and your parents having these Ferris Bueller day off days in <laughs> in chicago <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, you know, it's, it's great too, just having the L and as you take the L at the different parts of the city, the different views you get, it's, you know, I still feel like a kid to this day when I'm on the purple line or the the brown line and, or even the red line going up to Wrigley field, you know, and you just get these views. I just think Chicago is such a beautiful city. So it really makes me appreciate, you know, growing up there for sure. Now, do you feel like you pulled sort of creative juices from both of your parents? I mean, they they both sound very creative, hands-on, empathetic people. Is that where that seed was planted? Definitely. Yes. I, you know, I think I grew up just always learning from my dad that, you know, make it yourself. So it was for me, I always have this mindset of how could I make this myself? how could I actually put this together? And I have one of those brains that just needs to figure it out. So learning that from my dad, I think was a huge impact on me. So I love going to Home Depot or you know whatever <laughs> store it is and, and figuring out how I'm going to assemble something. And I don't mind putting furniture together either. I, you know, it's, it's like a puzzle to me. That was huge. You know, I've got my tools and everywhere I go, no matter what apartment I'm moving into, you know, I'm confident that I can kind of handyman yeah. <laughs> most things, That's great. Uh, which is nice. And then yes, from my mom, definitely there one experience that I remember standing out, one of our first design projects in architecture school was designing a chair. And it's known, you know, as you come in as a freshman, it's all oh, the chair design competition. And it's a big deal. And everyone's chair models get put on display in the architecture building. And for me, I chose to go more of a route of a chair that could, you know, be about your physical health and how you're sitting up straight and, you know, your posture and all of that as you're working at a desk all day. And that kind of influence comes from my mom of, you know, as we move through the world, the designed environment can really have an impact on our health, on our happiness. And, you know, especially for people that, you know, have different abilities and how great it is to design something that can make someone's life so much easier. Mm, um, so yeah. I think that was the other huge impact that um, you know my parents had. So I'm curious, you you sort of transitioned from design and architecture school into you now have a career in 
in marketing. But you know, thinking about that creative line of thinking that you kind of grew up into and grew up with with your parents, you transitioned into marketing, you transitioned into some business development side of uh, real estate, commercial real estate as well. Did you always have that piece of the puzzle in the back of your mind as well? Or did you learn about that along the way? Or, or how did that interest grow for you as well? Yeah, I would say definitely not. I never thought I would be doing business development or marketing. I was kind of a more on the shy side as a kid, uh, more introspective. I, I kind of like to sit and watch and observe. But going through high school and then going at, into college and being at UWM, I, I actually became um, the president of our American Institute of Architecture Students uh, organization at the school. And I had to get up in front of all of my peers once a month and, and give a, you know, a speech and, and lead and facilitate a lot of meetings. And through that, I got really comfortable in front of people and being in a role where I had to network with professors and the dean and incoming students and my peers. And I loved it. And it just became something that was now really natural to me. And I also had a moment in school where I realized, you know, being in this organization and connecting with my fellow students was giving me more of an opportunity to get a job. And at that time, you know, Getting a job in in architecture was was pretty tough. The economy had just tanked, and realizing that I could lean on these other skills was really, you know, a nice thing to to come out of that with. So didn't think I'd get into it, but happy that I fell into it for sure. Yeah, one of the things that you mentioned to me in a previous conversation was that you didn't feel like you were given enough training on the business side of design and kind of how that was actually accomplished and that really resonated with me because you know starting my my business after school and all that I've learned over the last decade or so I mean you're you're spot on there there's just not enough coverage of the business side of topics when we're in school yes and you know I didn't know what an RFP was when I graduated and now like I look back and I can't imagine how that wasn't part of my education, but an RFP or a request for a proposal is how in the industry, you know, work gets done and Mm -hmm. how uh, contracts are signed. And I hadn't even heard of that term until I, you know, graduated and got a job at my first architecture firm. And, you know, they're like, Hey, do you mind helping us fill out these RFPs. And I was like, yeah, sure. How hard can it be? And that's when I, you know, I realized that there was this whole other side of design and the business of getting work and and the ecosystem of all the different subcontractors and how contracts get signed and payments and all of that. And it's such an important thing that, yeah, I just felt that we didn't get enough practical or real world training in that, but I got a crash course in it as soon as I right, graduated. Yeah. As you ran <laughs> to Google to get the definition of RFP yes. at the time. Right, right. And <laughs> you know, I still have friends who are, you know, architects right now and RFPs make them just kind of shudder and they're like, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to have to write about what I do, but it forced me to learn how to articulate the value of what I was selling or doing, which I think is also a really important skill, especially for designers to have kind of even if when it gets into negotiating their own salaries or or moving up 
I think that group of people weren't given the best training in how to, you know, make their careers move forward and how to be innovative in the types of projects they're working on and and co-create and, you know, proposal with our clients to really get those bigger and better projects to to become reality. So I'm really happy that that was kind of the the path that I I landed on. So for creative people on the show, I always am curious if you've had any influence with travel, travel as a young person, travel throughout schooling or as an adult. And, and one thing that we won't get into too much at this point, we'll circle back to it later, but you're actually traveling right now for a different reason. But did travel also play a role as a young person growing up? Did it inspire you at all? Did it impact sort of lessons learned or the way that you see the world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So apart from, you know, growing up in a beautiful, wonderful city, I think spent my time in Milwaukee and Frank Lloyd Wright's influence there had a huge impact through the organization that I had mentioned earlier, the AIAS. We did a lot of events and spent time up at Taliesin in Spring Green, Wisconsin, and which is Frank Lloyd Wright's home and studio. And just being in spaces like that had such a profound impact on me that, you know, and it was just really wonderful. And I look back on those times with, you know, such joy because it's just so great to be in a place and feel that you understand why they made the design decisions that they did. And then taking those things that you love with you throughout the rest of your design career. So that was wonderful. And then also studying abroad in Europe was great. And kind of that first experience where I was out of the country on my own, we were in France and Italy and the UK and seeing a lot of Corbusier, you know, after learning about it in books, but then again, just being in the space and feeling, Mm -hmm. you know, what it's like to be in that environment and to see the light and the materials. It's, it's just, it's a huge kind of game changer as a, as a designer to, to go see the things that you've always, you know, read about. So one moment now I'm, I'm going to Turkey in a few months and I'm going to get to see the Hagia Sophia. So I'm super pumped about that because it was one of those buildings we learned about for years yeah. and I can draw you the outline of it. And <laughs> I had flashcards of it, you know, and now I'm going to get to go in and experience it. So that's fantastic. Um, yeah. Yeah. Really excited about that. So you, you began your career in business development and marketing positions. You kind of found your legs, so to speak, in school as you were kind of transitioning into more of a comfort role in front of people. How would you describe that day-to-day role as you start your, started your first few positions in the quote-unquote kind of real world? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So looking back on it now, it was really rapid fire. Any person that was in any to- type of marketing or BD role within the design industry was just, they were just getting hit all the time. I mean, RFPs are no joke. The deadlines are crazy. So for me, it felt like a continuation of architecture studio where we were pulling all-nighters. And it just went from that environment to then pulling all-nighters of getting an RFP completed. You know, And you'd get an RFP with maybe a week or not even of that much time to get it done. And you're running around like you have no head trying to (laughs) corral 
your engineers, your architects, your, you know, all of the different pieces and, and writing it and editing it and that kind of fear moment of, oh, I really hope I didn't spell something wrong. And, you know, so for the first few years of doing that, it's just, it was kind of a blur. You learn super fast, but it is a really challenging position to be in when these RFPs or even working with the procurement teams of potential clients and how detailed and it's very intricate process sometimes of, you know, making sure all of your parts and pieces are aligned to get your proposal even, you know, through the first stage. And that's before you even talk about going in and doing your pitch Mm. or presenting to the board. And, you know, then it becomes that. And so for many years, my life was a lot of ups and downs and crazy running around and getting things printed. And, you know, everything was just always on fire. Yeah. Um, But it was a great way to learn. So for me, after three years of doing that, I felt like it was probably worth, you know, 10 years of experience just with all of the craziness. But, you know, it forces you to learn how to get people to give you the information that you need super fast. And you have to think on your feet and you have to be smart and you have to think ahead and think about all the things you might need and reach out beforehand so that you're not, you know, totally running around all the time. Yeah, uh, Definitely uh, taught me how to project manage, which is another huge skill that I think a lot of people don't always get proper training on. And how to really put a, a team together and whatnot. So I would agree. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. You could start a college course just on the business side of of design, clearly. Mm-hmm. So more recently you moved into more of a design thinking role. And I'm excited to dig into this with you. Obviously, as you worked through kind of the ranks and the the crazy fire drill patterns of some of the commercial real estate industry and what it can bring. I want to first kind of pause and ask you what your definition of design thinking is, knowing that some listening may not totally know or have been able to wrap their head around that before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So for me, if I think about design thinking, it takes me back to architecture school. And what we learned there really was problem solving. It was a methodology, right? It's a way to develop solutions through a human-centered lens. You have to learn how to frame the question. So what is it that you're solving for? How do you go and gather data then and experience it in real time? You know, you can't just be on the outside looking in, but you have to really live the problem then, live the the challenge that you're trying to solve for. And then you synthesize, you design, you prototype, you know, you put it out into the world, you evaluate it, you repeat. So for me, that's what design thinking is. It's it's very human-centered and it's based off of data and experience that you're getting from you know, a first-hand perspective. And then the process of designing quickly and testing and evaluating your design and it being okay to change and evolve and grow and kind of an ever-evolving process. And so for those listeners who may have thought design thinking was more of a task or a, you know a, perhaps a list or something like that that's more of a binary zero and one situation it's actually more of a more of an evolving process and something that perhaps if i'm hearing correctly in your mind kind of changes and evolves over time yeah i think that you know we have to always be 
evaluating what we're putting out and especially with how fast technology is changing and the different generations and how they interact with themselves and their built environment, things are changing so quickly that if we don't stop and continuously evaluate what we're doing, you know, we're going to end up with the same problems we have now where we have schools that are, you know, 20 years out of date and just not ready for the technology that's here and that's impacting how children are learning and hospitals and all of those types of spaces. I think we need to be doing a better job of changing them quickly to keep up with technology and just human experience in general. So practically speaking, making this transition then into professional work, how do you find those principles being applied to the real estate projects that you're actually working on? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the first thing I would say is that it's about how are we telling our story to our clients and how are we finding them in their journey? The real estate process has changed so much in the past 10 years, even in the past five years that you know, we're constantly having to reevaluate our message and the types of products and services that we're offering. And then how are we getting to our clients and where are we reaching them? And is our content meaningful now? And you know, making sure that the way that we're speaking, even down to our tone of voice and our brand messages, is it even connecting to those decision makers today? So we have to be ever evaluating you know, the, the process of the client journey and understanding what their challenges are. And, you know, as things like co-working and flex space are impacting them, we have to always be pivoting and changing our message and then changing our services that we're offering as well. So that's one that impacts yeah. my day-to-day, definitely. We're, we're always reevaluating if our messaging and products and services are, are really what our clients are, are looking for or that we're going out far enough ahead to be prepared for when things do change. And on the flip side of that, you can look at the tenant experience too. So understanding how people are then engaging with the buildings in the space that we're working with and you know what an office space or a workspace means to them. We have a lot of data that we gather, but what are we doing with it? So we have to be really smart about planning for the future and helping our clients as they grow or shrink or move out of the country or you know whatever that might be we have to be working with them more as a partner and not just a one time transaction and then also you know again touching on the products and services that we offer JLL has really transitioned and becoming a technology company that specializes in real estate And that has been a a huge shift for many of our clients. And we need to make sure that we're messaging what these products can do for clients who may have never done that before. And, And when it comes to the human experience or the employee experience and retention and recruitment and employee happiness, you know, we have all of these new ways of of working through that. But if you don't get the message correctly and meet them where they are, you know you're going to kind of miss out on some really cool opportunities. When you talk about this, it strikes me as something that is, as you describe it, 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 it feels fairly obvious, right? But there's so many layers to it and so many kind of questions on questions. When you take a step back and you look at you know, what are the questions we're asking? How are we gathering data? What are we doing with that data? How do we kind of you know, go through that design, prototype, evaluate, rinse and repeat situation? 
again and again and again. Do you have templates for this work? Do you have sort of structures that you've developed within your role that help you work through those processes, both internally and and with your with your partners? Yeah, I think, you know, from a marketing perspective, we've become really nimble when it comes to brand messaging. And uh, we have to be so proactive with our different teams. You know, we may realize one day that there's an, uh, an entire market of, you know, let's just say tech companies that we haven't been tracking or working with in the past. And now we have to super quickly figure out how are we messaging our services towards this particular group of people. And we need to understand who they are and really do a deep dive into the type of space they need and look at comps, you know, what are the, what are their competitors doing? And then we have to super fast put this all together and figure out how we can, you know, help those types of companies. And so we're constantly changing and in the marketing department that I work in, we're, um, we've gotten really great at going through branding exercises and understanding, you know, new client types um, really quickly with our teams. So a lot of whiteboarding sessions for sure. And, you know, moving towards a system where we're changing our messaging so much more often than we used to. Whereas in years past, you know, you'd come up with a message and it would be the same message for five years until you decided it was time to to evaluate it. But we're doing this, you know, every few months, it mm. seems like, and really gut checking with our sales teams that what we're putting out there is hitting the mark. Yeah. So you're not only applying design thinking to the clients that you work with, but you're applying design thinking to everyday tasks within the marketing department itself. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then on more of the design side, you know, we're seeing in client spaces and lounges now that you know we can go in and test out different concepts to see what tenants are going to react to. So a lot of our teams, you know, are getting more creative and putting different amenities, you know, into buildings to test out their longevity, you know, and so that we can better help our clients understand where to put their the most time and, and energy into building which types of amenities. So that's been really cool to see, you know, which things kind of are more like a fad and which ones are really here to stay for a while. So yeah. um, that's been really cool. Yeah, well. that makes a lot of sense. So we're, we're tiptoeing into this direction, but my next question for you was going to really have to do with the changes in the commercial real estate industry over the last handful of years. You know, certainly since you've been working in it over the last handful of years, you've been on the front lines with it. What does that look like in terms of impacting kind of the project approach or the client interaction approach from, let's say, five or six years ago to today? Yeah. So today, the decision makers have definitely changed. You know, if you go back a few years, it was a lot of times the CFO or the CEO making a lot of the real estate decisions, whereas now we're talking to marketers and people in IT and tech and innovation and even people with roles like chief happiness officer or <laughs> you yep. know whatever that might be but the decision making process is becoming much more of an integrated you know cross the c suite type of decision and we're seeing companies that are being more successful in their real estate decisions are the ones that are going across the different you know marketing IT tech to get the buy-in from the different groups, especially HR. I mean, understanding how HR has become such a partner 
to real estate a few years ago to many people wouldn't make sense. But, you know, you can build the most beautiful office ever, but if you don't understand your employee base and what their values are and, you know, how it's connecting to your brand, you could have a total miss. Mm, so we're, yeah. we're definitely seeing that conversation flow into away from bottom line numbers and RSFs and square footage and whatnot to employee happiness scores and uh, retention rates and more of a, you know, experiential ROI other than just focused on on finance. Right. So that's been really cool to see. But again, it's one of those things that that conversation has been around for years. And, you know, as a designer, you know that you have to lead with the human perspective. But for real estate, it's taken us a little bit longer to get there. But now it's everybody's talking about it, which is kind of exciting. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems like the focus is almost being flipped 180, where instead of you alluded to square footage and finance, it's more about uh, happiness of, of people, happiness of tenants. You know, does the company fit the space well? And those are sort of the primary concerns or they're becoming the primary concerns rather than making the kind of the exact square footage or the exact numbers work right out of the gate, which is interesting because it's clearly a shift that we've been seeing outside of you know the real estate industry. And it's nice to see the industry catching up. Yes, definitely. And I think you'll start to see too that in the newest, coolest office spaces, you know, there may not be some of those ping pong tables or whatever, you know, was trendy at the time, but really spaces that are allowing humans to interact with each other and for employees to be coming together to share ideas and whatnot and and less so much on those kind of cool hip factors that maybe just don't in the long run really do anything yeah. for the space. Fewer beer kegs and yes. ping pong tables mm-hmm. and air hockey tables and mm-hmm. more just better space to actually live live life and interact with right. people. Right. So tell exactly. me tell me about JLL Spark, which is which is something I want to touch on too, because that's really it, it seems like this is where at least the leaders in the commercial real estate industry are headed. So can you give us a kind of an overview of what that is? Mm-hmm. So JLL Spark is a venture fund that JLL started a few years back. So I believe we started with a hundred million dollars and we are investing in prop tech companies. And what I mean by prop tech really is property technology or any new ideas that are coming out that affect not only how people are interacting with space, but also how the real estate transaction process is being done as well. So at this time, I think JLL has eight or nine companies that we've invested in, and we're seeing everything from new ways of renting office furniture and how to quickly get spaces furnished, you know, in less time than ever before. And apps, so tenant experience apps. So if I work in an office building, can I do basically everything I need to do from my dry cleaning to my package delivery to ordering my lunch and parking, you know, all from my cell phone so that I don't have to worry about, you know, where do I find this or where do I find that? And everything is right there on your phone. And then that, of course, is tracking so much data. So what are we doing with this data and how are we using it to help you know, push forward some new 
design styles and and whatnot. So it's been really cool to be a part more up on the front end of these new companies that are coming out. And then we look at it or JLL looks at it of, you know, these companies, what they're doing, how can it benefit our clients? And we can start to really help connect those dots to the users as well. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. From a personal perspective, why do you feel like that's important in the industry? Yeah, I think, you know, when many people think of real estate, they may still have that um, kind of old stuffy feeling about it. But this is really a way to connect real estate back to what we really are doing, which is it's providing space for humans to get things done, you know? So even though it's all this advancement of technology and apps and whatnot, it's, it's really about how can we create uh, ways to make the space better serve the people who are in it. So for me, that's what I love about it is that it's connecting it back to, you know, why do we do this anyway? You know, it's really about the space and it's about the people and what they're doing in it. So I think it's super exciting and you start to see some really cool case studies of, you know, what the future of this industry is going to look like, especially, you know, you could look at co-working and flex space and, and all of that and all of the new uh, companies that are, you know, coming out from this new kind of era, which is exciting. One project that you chatted with me about earlier is the Willis Tower renovations as something that you noted as being a great example of how this evolution is actually taking place sort of in real time. Large projects, a lot of eyes on it. It's kind of forcing change within the industry itself. Talk to us about how that evolution has occurred and sort of what that means for the work that you're doing and kind of the example you were just alluding to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when we look at you know the changes in Willis Tower, it's really how how one of the most iconic buildings in Chicago is getting reimagined and then what that means for that part of the city too. So as companies are coming back downtown and re-energizing parts of the cities that may have been a little sleepy in the past you know, 10 years. I don't know a ton of people who used to love to hang around where Willis Tower is. You know, They just don't seem to go into that area, but now there's going to be so many new amenities and restaurants and whatnot. So it's, it's cool to see how one project is then, it's like that ripple effect of Willis Tower is getting, you know, reimagined, which means that whole area is going to start to get re-energized. And it's interesting, again, to see that amenities race of, you know, what's the newest thing that's going to go in there and kind of the quality of design that are getting put into these tenant spaces and communal spaces has been really cool. Willis Tower will also have a tenant experience app, which was built by a company called HQO which has been funded by JLL Spark as well. So it's it's really cool to see how a company that JLL has helped in some way making real world, you know, changes into our most iconic building, but there's going to be some really great co-working space in there, beautiful communal space, new restaurants and and whatnot. So it's it's allowing that kind of energy of bringing companies back into that area, which will be really really cool to see. Yeah. Let me play devil's advocate for a second because I'm really curious about the amenities race that you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, being you know kind of along for the ride, just like you, and seeing 
you know, what is sort of in demand at a time and what's hot now and what's wondering what's going to be hot tomorrow. How do you decipher between kind of a, a flash in the pan and something that's going to be a long term amenity that actually adds value long tail to a project versus something that could get snuffed out after, you know, 12 months or 18 months? Mm-hmm. How do you do that? Yeah. So we mine a lot of data from our clients. And when we're out touring space and bringing them through, you know, our top spaces that we would recommend and we work with them on what their kind of list of must-haves is, that's where we're getting that data. So if we're seeing that the majority of our clients who are looking for, you know, 50,000 square feet or more, if they're always looking for a building that has to have a gym or it has to have access to co-working space or if it's dry cleaners or whatever it is, they're they're giving us this information, which is really great. And, and hopefully if um, it's all working, you know, they're getting this feedback directly from their employees on what they're looking for. Then they're translating that to us and we're staying out ahead of it. So it's definitely, you know, a lot of times just the simple things of great internet and Wi-Fi speeds. <laughs> well, <laughs> you just know? the basics, that's yeah. Still, that's still one of the most important things. So now seeing how buildings are changing the, the infrastructure so that they can accommodate these companies that have some pretty strict needs on, on internet speeds and security and whatnot. But yeah, restaurants are always going to be you know another one and gyms. Right now, the building gyms are, it's just insane to see what a new gym looks like. You know, for instance, in Willis Tower, um, we actually just got one at the Aeon Center too. And the excitement that went through, you know, all of JLL when the new gym opened up was crazy. So, you know, it's it's interesting to see over the next couple of years how things are going to change and, you know, what that next tenant lounge is going to look like. Mm. But I will say for the majority, it's it's pretty much those basic needs that need to get met. Coffee, Wi-Fi, place to work out, right? maybe a, a Walgreens or yeah. something close by um, you, to you, make your life easier. You And you mentioned um, a couple minutes ago about forcing change and, and sort of leading the charge on uh, on this evolution. And another project that you made note of to me was the post office development along that part of the loop. So what, when you think about change and evolution, does it usually go sort of one big project to another big project to another big project? Or do you see it spread more kind of wide? Is that birth kind of like wide at that point? Do you see lots of micro projects kind of make that type of evolution as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's funny. You'll actually see, you know, when one big project is happening, a lot of those other projects use that as leverage. So with Willis Tower getting renovated and the post office being pretty close to it, it's now there's now this whole story of the south branch of the Chicago River and that part of the city becoming the next best place to be. And you have all these developments going on with residential developments, you know, the 78 and what's going on on like Harrison and Wells and all of that. So they all play off of each other and they all use each other as leverage to to make it sound like that is the next, you know, hottest place to be. Mm. So at the post office, it was interesting too, because everyone was so excited about it, but 
no one had made a big deal yet and you know no major lease had been signed so it's kind of like you wait for the one to happen and then it's a domino effect so once somebody figures out how to make it happen and you get a company for instance like Walgreens to you know say yes to moving into the post office then it becomes okay it can actually happen and then that kind of takes off like wildfire mm. so yeah it's it's they definitely all work together and into that more of that marketing story of why you should go there and why it's going to be the next best thing. And then that's when restaurants will start to open up. And so it's, it's definitely a domino effect. Yeah, that's, and that's how it happens. Mm-hmm. So I, I want to uh, touch on a couple other things before we wrap up here. And one of them is your travels. And where are you today? I am in Lima, Peru today. I will be heading to Cusco later this week, um, which <laughs> so, is very exciting. So, so how how is this all possible? What are you doing right now that's allowing you to travel all across the world? Because it sounds pretty cool to me. Yes. So I am currently on a program called Remote Year. And Remote Year is a, they're a third-party company that helps facilitate remote work. So whether or not you're an entrepreneur or you work for a large Fortune 500 company like I do, Remote Year helps facilitate you know, where you're going to live, where you're going to work, are you going to have internet, and then do you have a solid community of other like-minded people with you? So um, I'm currently, while I'm the only person from JLL doing this right now, I'm traveling with 43 other people um, from all different backgrounds who work for all different companies. And we are traveling for four months throughout South America. So basically, Remote Year will set you up with co-working spaces in each of um, the cities. You get housed together with the other people that are in your program, but you can kind of choose to do it however you want if you want to be as social or unsocial as you'd like to be, but it's been really fun. I've made some great friends and the knowledge drops that are happening between the people who are all here is incredible. So, you know, I could basically learn, you know, a million skills in these four months with all the people that I'm with. But so how does this experience then inform the work that you're doing? Like when I say that, I mean, speaking for myself, um, not to put, you know, words in your mouth, but I, I find myself reflecting on some of the strangest things when I travel that you don't just think about like, you know, when you're in the office in Chicago. So what has been intriguing or inspiring to you as you've had this time away from the kind of the normal Chicago routine? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So definitely the the co-working life is this is the first time that I'm relying on co-working space to get my job done. I've been lucky enough to always work for a company that has, you know, a really good office space, but this is the first time where I know I need to get my job done and I'm going to need to have a quiet room and access to a phone booth and strong internet and a printer. So it's kind of been interesting to see this group of 40 plus professionals, you know, descend upon a co-working space and then rank it, you know, within the first day of, oh my gosh, I can't believe their coffee is like this or their printer is like this. And is your internet fast? I couldn't get on today. So we actually, in our first city, we were in Santiago, Chile, and we, you know, realized that the group needed to have more phone rooms and access to quiet space than the co-working space had available. So within the first two weeks, they literally built us three new phone booth rooms just for our group. So wow. to see how quickly 
people can react and how, you know, co-working spaces need to be ever evolving has been really cool. And even, you know, in each city, in the different ones we've been in, you'll see that in one city, everyone's in the co-work space every day, but in another city, the vibe wasn't so great. So literally no one will be in the co-working space that day. And that's when everyone's out looking at cafes and then you, you know, kind of that digital nomad culture of which cafes are great, which coffee is the best, which has the best Wi-Fi, is it closest to, you know, X, Y, or Z. So it's been really interesting to see how other like-minded professionals are ranking space to work in and really what their top priorities are. And I'll be honest with you, again, it's Wi-Fi and coffee. (laughs) I don't think that's ever going to change. Sure. All those core, yeah. those core foundational items will be there yes. forever. Mm-hmm. What do you think about you know, a theme or an idea or a concept that you will take with you back to the States once you finally land back in Chicago? Yeah, I think for me, what's been most important is learning how to change my, my day up. So while yes, I'm still 100% committed to doing my job, which I do back in Chicago, I now am getting more out of my day where in the morning I want to explore a, you know, a different part of the neighborhood and, and grab a coffee somewhere. And at night I'm going to a cooking lesson or a new restaurant and I'm looking at my time differently while I'm here, which I think will really impact how I live back in Chicago. And you know, instead of going home from work and kind of holding up on the couch, I'm, I'm now in a state where I want to be exploring and really, you know, going to the all the things that are happening. So I'm going to take that back with me to Chicago for sure. Vicky, final question I always end with. Yes. You have been doing some really amazing things the last few months and you've been traveling and you've been inspired by all sorts of cities and people and experiences. So great question for you. Who else should we be paying attention to? Groundbreaking work, inspiring work. This is your platform. Yeah. So I'm really interested now to to be talking about how groups of people are actually supporting each other, right? And we have these great co-working spaces and there are places for entrepreneurs to go and build their companies, but what are those networks look like? So it's been really interesting to see how in each of these co-working spaces, there's a, you know, a certain energy and connection that people are having. So for me, looking at things like The Wing and something called Chief, which are both women-focused, and they are places where the focus is on building networks for women specifically and, and understanding how to use our friendships that we create and relationships that we create to help better our businesses as well. So I'm I'm interested to see the different kind of offshoots of of this type of community culture that has been happening. So mm-hmm. I know there's a wing opening up in Chicago. I think it opened this month actually. So once I'm back, I'm going to definitely go check that out and see again. It's not so much about the space too, but it's about that community and what people are offering and how you're transferring knowledge and helping lift other people up. So Definitely interested in that and we'll be keeping tabs on all that different growth in that area. Absolutely. And you'll have to double check on their Wi-Fi and their coffee selection. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> As we wrap up here, you know, obviously we kind of know where you're up to these days, but uh, where can people find you online or, or get in touch if they want to have a conversation? 
Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram, which I'm trying to continuously post some beautiful shots from my travels. So on Instagram, I'm Vicki Bartling and you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Uh, and I'm happy to connect there. I think it's the best form for me to connect anyway. And I uh, would be happy to chat with anyone. Fantastic. Vicki, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Happy to be here. Transforming Cities is brought to you by Authentic Form and Function, the digital design and development team that just might be a perfect fit for your next urban project. If you're a new listener, you can follow along at AuthenticFF.com slash Transforming Cities, or you can simply subscribe through your favorite apps, including iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Thanks for joining us. 